Perhaps your life has been touched in some way by the disease of Alzheimer's. Mine has. My father developed the disease when he was about 75 years old. He lived 12 more years. It was a long, drawn-out, difficult death. Not only for him, but for my mother in particular, and my sister and I secondarily. And that's a disease that, by the way, has more people suffering from it in the United States of America than any other nation in the world. It's not simply because we have a large population. It's estimated that 50 million Americans suffer from Alzheimer's, 5.8 million of whom are residents of the United States. There doesn't seem to be a very pretty picture being painted about the future of this illness. And certainly it robs people of their memory, robs them of their dignity, it robs them of the capacity to do even the smallest, simplest chore that they were taught as babies, as it were. Today I would like not to talk anymore about the way people lose their memory physically. But I would like to talk about what I believe this text talks about, and that is creator forgetfulness. There is a tendency for us to forget our creator. Otherwise, there would not be so much said in the Bible about remembering the Lord, remembering what God has done, remembering who he is. So without saying any more, I'll invite you to join me at the 8th verse in the 11th chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes as we consider this matter of remembering our Creator. Verse 8 says, So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Now Solomon must have been having a bad day when he said that. It's kind of gloomy, isn't it? Well, I'm sparing you the first 11 chapters, or almost 11 chapters, up to this verse, because the first 11 chapters are really gloomy and full of doom. Not much hope. It's unfortunate that we have not been taught how to read this book in one sitting. Because, you see, the first 11 chapters are really autobiographical. Solomon's talking about his pursuit of what really is to be designed for our lives and how he's frustrated in his pursuits. Here was a man who was brilliant, a man who had all the luxuries that a king of his stature was afforded. It was in his reign that Israel reached its apex in terms of it being a place of peace, There was expansion of territory. There was accumulation of great wealth in the coffers of the king. It was a place that people would come to from all over the world just to get a few moments with this man who in the midst of all that opportunity was a man who was struggling in his own pursuit of God. And he comes to the end. And this passage of Scripture One would wish he had given this first and then gone forward, because if he had, people would have finished the book, probably, more than they otherwise have. But nevertheless, we're looking at this section of Scripture. And what we're going to see as we look at it is that there is a reason to remember the Creator. It's very simple. And there's also a season to do it. The reason, of course, is because He created us. You are no accident. You're not some sort of descendant of a primordial ooze that had nothing to resemble your DNA as a human being. God created you. And He did not make a mistake when He made you. When you were conceived in your mother's womb, God punched in a genetic code that had to do not only with your physical appearance, but also your psychological makeup. Read carefully the book of Psalm 139. And in addition to that, 
to show that God had a purpose for you and me in creating us. The Bible says in that psalm that all the days that were ordained for me, this is the word of David. He had that personal relationship to God. And by the way, this is what God would have for us. It was true for Solomon. It was true for his father, David. It's true for us. God created us for a personal relationship. Notice the way in which Solomon speaks about the God that he is referring to. He says to the people, he's challenging them. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. This God was personal, not only to the monarchy, but also to the rank and file descendant of Abraham. And he wants to be personal with you and me. There's nothing that dignifies a person quite like knowing God through Jesus Christ. God reveals Himself to us. We respond in faith to Him. We become, as a result, people in whom He dwells by His Spirit. And He gives us a purpose that transcends our own selfishness. And transcends time as well. I feel so sorry for people who don't know the Lord. It's said about the sons of Eli, the priest... In the days of Samuel, that Eli's sons, their names were Hophni and Phinehas. It says they were worthless and they were useless, worthless and useless. Why? They did not know the Lord. Do you know what makes a man or a woman's life worthwhile? It's knowing God. How do you know God? Well, the Bible says these are the words of Jesus. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We know the Father through the Son. Isn't that what Jesus told Philip when Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And he says, have I been so long with you, Philip, and you still don't know who I am? He who's seen me has seen the Father. We see Jesus, and in effect, we know the Father, because Jesus is essence In essence, God, too, he he behaves exactly like his father. This is what God has for us, to know him personally. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12 for a moment. Remember, also your creator in the days of your youth. The word translated youth here is a word which literally means to decide for. You get the picture. This person to whom, or people to whom this was first addressed, were people who were still under the roof and the authority of their father, the leader of their family. They were what we would call minors. And you stayed a minor until you went out and started your own home. I was thinking about my own family history. My grandfather Woods got married, close your ears young people, when he was 16. And my grandmother robbed the cradle. She had just turned 18. They got married young. And when Papa Woods went out, Mama Woods went out and established their household, I don't even know where they lived. They lived lived, uh, on their own and they made a living. My grandfather was a farmer and he farmed and made a living, eked out an existence for his wife and then his eight children as the family developed and grew. But people who are addressed directly here are people who are minors, as it were. I'm going to get to that in just a moment, the importance of knowing God when you're young. So you have the rest of your life to know Him and to grow in Him, to fear Him, to serve Him. The word translated remember It was surprising to me as I was doing the preparation for this message. I've taught on this on more than one occasion over the course of my pastoral work. But I never had been been introduced to this idea. It's not an idea. It's a way that this word really should be viewed. Remember. It's not like I tried to remember the street and the place where Jimmy Jean Peterson lived. It was not that kind of remember. It's not just simply recollection 
of information. This word is used, and we know it because we see it used this way in 1 Samuel 119. You know the name of the woman, Hannah. Remember, Hannah was one of two wives of a man named Elkanah. The other wife, the counterpart of Hannah, was Penina. And she had several children, yet Hannah was barren, and she was brokenhearted as a result of that. She cried out to the Lord. She wept. She was praying to the Lord, and the high priest Eli saw her. She was just not saying out loud, but her lips were moving, and he thought she was drunk. It was early in the morning, and he began to scold her, and she said, I'm not drinking. I'm asking the Lord to remove my barrenness. And then that prayer was answered, as was the prayer of Eli. He said, you're going to have a child. He prophesied over her. And the Bible says in 1 Samuel 1.19 that she conceived a child because the Lord remembered her. Here's what the word remembered really means. Listen carefully. It means that it is an act decisively for another. God acted on behalf of Hannah, and He gave her a child. He remembered her. It would be like when I would say to you, I remembered you in my prayers today. Does that mean you just popped into my head out of nowhere? It could have been that. But if I really remember a person in my prayer, I pray for them. I act decisively on their behalf. I pray as far as I know how to pray according to the will of God. I pray the will of God because I know what the Bible promises when it says that this is the confidence we have before God, that if we ask anything according to God's will, we know He hears us. And if we know He hears us, we know He's answered our prayer. We can relax about it. That's the way we ought to pray. Just like Eli prayed for Hannah, God answered it. So the idea of remembering is to act decisively on behalf of whom? God. We're to be servants of the living God. I talked about what happens when a person is born again and gets to know God. That's very dignifying. The ground is level, as the old saying goes, at the cross of Jesus Christ. In Christ, there is neither rich nor poor, neither educated or uneducated, neither black nor white nor red nor brown. We are all one in Jesus Christ. There is no class system in the Christian faith. It doesn't matter where you come from. It matters whose you are. And you have been bought with a price, the price of the precious blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And consequently, you are His. And He has a purpose for your life that exceeds anything that you or I could ever imagine. He created you just like He created me the first time for His pleasure. Have you noticed when you study the book of Genesis, the first two chapters, that after every day of creation, the Bible says, God saw it and it was good. That was a way of saying God saw it and He was pleased with what He saw. And then at the end of creation... After he had created man, male, and female, the Bible says God saw it, what he had done, and it was very good. Do you know what put the very on top? It was the creation of you and me and mankind. We are the crowning achievement of his creation. Believe it. God created you. You're not a mistake. And He has a plan for you. He wants you and He wants me to please Him. That's the purpose for us. Earlier in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2, verse 26, the Bible talks about that the Lord does something for those who please Him. And this is what it is. He gives them three things. Now, this is yours if you seek to please the Lord. And I'll talk more about how you do that before I finish, I hope, this morning. Here are the three things God promises you. It's yours to claim. Wisdom, knowledge, and joy. You can't buy those things. 
They are things which are supernaturally given to you and to me. If we please Him, He is pleased with us. We also need to understand, we should make it, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, our goal to please Him. We want to please the Lord if we know Him. We want to please Him so He can be honored and glorified. The very idea that we were created to please God is viewed as nonsense by a large portion of our population. The idea that God made us and not we ourselves is an idea that sticks in the craw of many secularists in our country and in the world today. But we were created for God's pleasure. We need to remember Him because that causes us to act decisively for Him. This idea also carries with it, and understandably, the idea of remembering in the word which is used here and elsewhere in the Old Testament, not exclusively translated as that, but it's the big idea. What it also suggests is that we submit to Him. When we know Him, we want to submit to Him. And it's only when we submit to Him, that is, give Him our full attention and allegiance, it's only then that we can please Him. And that's what God wants for you, as sure as He wants it for me. In the movie, Chariots of Fire, based on the true story of two aspiring Olympians, both of whom ran the 100-meter dash for Great Britain, in the 1920 Olympics held in Paris. One was a secularist. The other was a Christian. The Christian's name, Eric Little. There was a conversation between his sister and him, and she didn't want him to go run in the Olympics. She thought that was worldly. She was a Christian, a devout Christian, and he was too. But this is what he said to his older sister. She was afraid that he was going to renege on his commitment to go, after finishing his university degree at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, to go back to the nation of, and land of his birth in China. He had promised God he would be a missionary there. And he said, Jenny, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. Isn't that interesting? I run for His glory. Jenny, let me do what God has created me for. Now, there aren't many Olympians here. There may be one in the making. We have a young man who grew up in our church. Last year, amazingly, he was in the top five of the United States. He didn't get his senior year. I'm talking about in 1918, I guess it would be. I'm I'm 100 years ago. 2019 is when it was, actually. And... uh, He was number four in the nation in the 400 meters. That's out of thousands, tens of thousands of people. He could be an Olympian someday. But for the rest of us, it'll be in our dreams, won't it? That's great. Dreams are many times great, aren't they? Who is always the focal point of your dream? Just think. Take a moment. Take a moment. Who is always the focal point of your dream? You are. Yeah. You are of your dream, and I am of my dream. That tells you something, doesn't it, about dreaming. It's amazing, isn't it? Well, let's consider now the second part of this text of Scripture. The first is that the reason for remembering God is because He's our Creator. We owe Him attention. But more than that, we owe Him service. Because he's revealed himself to us. Here are the seasons for remembering the Lord. It seems when we just look at verse 12, there's only one season. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. Well, yeah, that's included. But glance up the page to verse 8. It says, So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will many. All that comes is vanity. We're to remember our Creator not just in our youth, but that's a good place to begin. A wasted youth is a waste of a lot of time. But not only that, 
it really doesn't give as good a foundation as it otherwise should be. In the New Testament era, a person who was under the age of 40 was a youth. Now, I would imagine probably almost half the people here under that age. It's not too late if you haven't yet begun to have this attitude of remembering the Lord in the sense of acting decisively at His bidding. When He moves you, you respond. You want to please Him and you seek to please Him. And He is honored by you when you please Him. But it's not just for youngsters. But the reason the youth period of life is so important is it's a time before life's pressures come. For some reason, when I was preparing this sermon, my mind went back to the summer of 1965. I was a rising sophomore in high school. I'd been invited to go up and play with the varsity team in baseball for the summer. And I was feeling really good about myself. I rode the pine most of the time, so I didn't get in too many games. But I was hanging out with the big boys, you know. And that's the way athletes like to hang out. And it's not just for baseball, and I won't go into the other reasons you want to be an athlete. But those of you who have been athletes, you know what I'm talking about. But nevertheless, I remember a certain afternoon after a hot practice, I was riding with the captain of our team. He was the leading young man in our high school, and he was a devoted Christian. That's what drew me to him as much, if not more, than anything. And his name's Don Campbell. I knew him as Donnie then. Don's still alive, age of 72. And we got in the car after practice. He had said, do you need a ride home, Mike? I said, would you please? And I felt so important riding home with Donnie. And we got to our favorite hangout after baseball practice. It was the snow cone place, we called it. It was shaved ice, kind of like Bahama Bucks is today in El Paso. And... I probably paid a dime for this thing. This is 1965, remember. And at shaved ice, and I remember it was lime. Not because green's my favorite color, but lime is my favorite flavor at that time at least. And I was just thinking about that. And so I thought about that in connection with this message. You're probably wondering, what in the world is that all about? <laughs> remember, I was daydreaming in this dream, okay? So I was a center of attention. But then as I began to think about my life at that period, 15 years old, really having a good time in life. And then I thought, you know, that dime or quarter or whatever it was my, I had in my possession, I didn't work for that. But there was someone who did. There were two people, really. My father, who would get up at 5 o'clock every morning almost, work 12 hours a day, six days a week sometimes. Never heard him one time complain about going to work. He saw it as a privilege. He saw it as an opportunity for him to do something for those he loved. For my mother, my sister, and me. My mother was part of that. She was a teammate. My mother took care of us. I can't imagine having better care given to me by my mother She made sure that my sister and I got where we needed to go on time. She made sure that when Daddy was out of town as he traveled as a truck driver, that we were taken care of. We got to church when we needed to be at church. We got to school when we needed to be at school. She went to the grocery, bought the groceries, prepared the food. Sometimes she'd take us out for a burger. But it was a great team. But they did it all for me. I didn't have to do any of that. Not any of it. But there came a day, August the 15th, 1971. I said, I do, and everything changed that day. All of a sudden, I was the man. At least I thought I was. I was the man. And it was my responsibility to step up. I began to understand a little bit more about how this text teaches that We're to remember the Creator in the days of our youth before the days of pressure came. They do come, and they begin to mount up, don't they? When you take on the responsibility of marriage, 
and children follow. And wow, you really begin to appreciate your parents if you had parents who took care of you. I know there's some people who are not as privileged as I. But what we know is that troubles increase. The word translated evil days really means troubles is what it means. It's used as the opposite of the Hebrew word shalom. You know what that means. Shalom means the best that life has to offer. That's what shalom means. And so we understand that trouble is the opposite of what's good. It's the worst. Troubles come. They come when you graduate from being a youth and you become independent. But remember, what makes a relationship with the Creator so important, Solomon even talks about it. In the book of Ecclesiastes, he says this. He says, we know that what God does lasts forever. What by implication would that say about what Mike Woods does independently of God? It doesn't last at all. But what God does lasts forever as we depend upon the Lord. Distractions increase with age because of growing responsibilities. Before we go beyond this matter of why it's so important in youth, the season, is because not only do pressures increase and come, but also pleasures begin to cease. If you want to read about Solomon, who had the world by the tail, the kingdom that he ruled was very, very successful. But he talks about how in the second chapter he says, I said to my heart, do whatever you want to so you can enjoy yourself. Test yourself. He was saying to his heart, test yourself. He was putting himself in a testing situation. And he tried everything. Read about it. Anything that you could try to bring pleasure into your life or have tried before, you can see he tried it. And at the end of that, he says, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Including things that were legitimate and some which were probably illegitimate that he did. But he said, it's all vanity. This refrain is in the book of Ecclesiastes, vanity, vanity. What that means is pointlessness, pointlessness. Everything is pointless. Do you ever feel that way? Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever wondered why you keep doing what you do? If you don't know Christ, you probably have. If you do know Jesus, there was likely a time, if you didn't come to Christ until you were an adult, when you felt that way. But it's what we said earlier. Whatever is done for Christ in dependence upon Him, it lasts forever. And it has purpose, for sure. Now, let's delve in to the description of the pleasures of life ceasing. You can read about Solomon's at your leisure. He's already discussed that. But what he says in verse 2 has to do with atmospheric conditions. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds run return after the rain. When you're young... You can get sick. How many times have you said as a parent or an observer of small children, wow, they got over that fast. Have you ever said that? And you had the same illness if it was in your family, and it took you days. And when you grow older, the older you grow, typically the longer the period of recovery is when you have an illness that your child has for 24 hours and is up and at them. It happens, doesn't it? And this is the picture here. The sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain instead of there being a break. I was looking in a little piece on the Weather Channel this morning about preparation for Hurricane Beta. They've had so many hurricanes this year. There's, they're into the Greek alphabet naming these hurricanes. And it showed... A beautiful blue sky, but it showed road workers on the road trying to clear the road near the coast of Texas of a debris. 
It's coming again. It's like a hurricane after a hurricane. It's like this hurricane season. That's what he's talking about. Then he changes his figure of speech. And now he's talking about a house that's in degeneration. It's decaying. Look at verse 3. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble. Maybe you know someone who's older and the person is beginning to have essential tremors or maybe Parkinson's disease and they can't control their tremors. Some people take medications that the side effect is they have tremors. Well, this has nothing to do with medication. It has to do with growing older. And that which would be trembling would be the hands of the individual, maybe the legs of the individual. Maybe it even includes the upper body hunched over because of aging. He goes on to say in verse 3, And the strong men are bent. This could be the back, probably. Sometimes when I'm talking with my peers, we'll talk about how we've lost height. Don't feel sorry for me. If you live long enough, you will too. You know. I always wanted to be six feet tall, and now I'm five ten and a half. What a bummer. I made five eleven and a half and didn't get any taller, and now I'm going backwards. It's amazing. But that happens, doesn't it? It's part of our growing older. But it doesn't have to define you or me. We're to be defined by whose we are and consequently who we are and the purpose of our lives. What is our purpose in life? To know God, to fear God, and to serve God. What a deal for us who were dead in our trespasses and sin. And then God came and He redeemed us from our sin. And now, He's using us. It's phenomenal. Let me just stop here before I forget it. Speaking of remembering, it came to my mind. Let me share a few little stories. William Gladstone. That name means little to most people, but some of you remember his name. In the back of your mind, you might say, I think he was from Great Britain, and maybe he was a politician, and you'd be both if you answer, you'd be correct on both if you answer that. At the age of 80, he decided to learn, excuse me, wrong decade. At the age of 70, he decided to learn a new language, and he actually learned a new language. At the age of 83, Mr. Gladstone became the Prime Minister of Great Britain, count them, for the fourth time, 83 years of age. Let me mention yet another man. This man is not as well known. His name was C.H. Nash. Mr. Nash was the founder of the Melbourne Bible Institute in Australia. A thousand of the students who went to that school while he was the principal of the school, a thousand comprised of males and females went out to do mission work. Highly successful. When he retired at age 70, between 70 and 90, he asked God, would you give me a fruitful life until my life ends? The last thing we know about that life before he died was that God had given him a promise for his decade of the 80s, and God fulfilled that he would be fruitful, and indeed he was. In fact, when he was 89 years old, he was overseen reading the sixth volume of Toynbee's World History just to keep himself mentally sharp. I haven't even cracked the first volume. This man's 89 doing that. Another example of another missionary, Benjamin Ryrie. At the age of 80, after retiring, he decided he was going to learn the Greek language so he could read the New Testament in its original form. He learned He was a scholar. At the age of 90, he went back to a seminary and took a refresher course on the Greek. Amazing. And then at 100, he was at a Bible conference, and he had in his hand his Greek New Testament, listening to the teaching of the Bible of the New Testament. And in the other hand, he had a lexicon, his Greek lexicon, referring to it to see if, in fact, this teacher was right. Wouldn't you hate to have a person like that in the audience when you're teaching? Unbelievable. 
But the point being is, you're never too old. Do you understand? And I'm not just saying this because I'm 70 years old. I can't believe I'm 70. I don't think I am. I think I'm in a dream. It's unbelievable. It's unreal. I don't really believe that. I know I'm here. But the good news for us is it doesn't matter where you are on the continuum of life. That if you know the Lord, you can remember Him and act decisively in His name. And minister to people in the power of the Spirit of God. And your life will count. That's one thing I think I would fear more than anything else. That I leave this world and my life not count. Do you ever have that thought in your mind? I want it to count, Lord. And the older I get, the more I want it to count. Because I know there is less time. I was always good at math, by the way. Less time. Let's go on and look a little further in this passage. It says, those not only are the strong men bent, and the grinders cease because they're few. That's easy to figure out. What would that be? Your teeth, that's what it would be. Thank God for modern dentistry, right? And he goes on to say, those who look through the windows are dimmed. Thank God for ophthalmology, too. I have been a pastor now for 43 years. I distinctly remember in my first pastorate, I went to see a lady who'd had cataract surgery, just one, and she had to lie flat of her back. She couldn't move for almost a week for fear that all the work that had been done by the doctor would have been undone and she would not have a chance of seeing. And then when she got glasses, I'm not kidding you, I believe they were that thick, the lens were. Unbelievable. And now we had a lady in our church who's in her 50s and has had a cataract removed. And she says, I can't believe how clear my vision is. She's already got an appointment for later this month to have the other one done. What a miracle. Thank God for doctors. And thank God for Christian doctors as well. Especially, we have so many men and women in our church who love the Lord. They love Him as much as anybody loves Him. And they serve Him with gladness in their practice of medicine. Praise God for that. Let's look at the text again. And the doors of the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. This talks at least about one thing. And what would it be? Hearing, right? Hearing. Losing your hearing. Can you hear me? Some of you can. You know, thank God for hearing aids too. Praise the Lord. But... We lose our hearing. You see this picture. It's a, it's a picture that's comprehensive, isn't it? Of what goes on in the bodies of people when they get older sometimes. In most cases, some men and women are really blessed with a strong constitution. And they don't have all these things to deal with. But most of us have identified ourselves, if you're over 60 at least, with some of these things. Maybe 70 or older. It goes on to say where it says they rise up at the sound of a bird. When I was in my 20s in my first pastorate, I would listen to these older men and I would just envy them. I voiced my envy when they'd say, I got up at four this morning and I don't go to bed till like 11 at night and all this stuff. And I thought, man, I wish I could get by on four or five hours of sleep. It's taken me seven to even drag myself out of bed. Eight and now I wake up at four in the morning or earlier every day, and I don't want to. It's, it's unbelievable. It is unbelievable. My prayer was finally answered 45 years later. Unbelievable. But it happens, doesn't it? And it goes on to say here, they are afraid of what is high and terrors are in the way. Have you noticed sometimes elderly people will have an event? Like they will trip and fall. I'll never forget my grandmother, my maternal grandmother as a widow, going down a rather steep driveway, lost her balance, tripped, fell, and broke her wrist. She was never the same in terms of her confidence again after that. One of them. And the older we get, 
the less stable we might be in our balance and we fall and we hurt ourselves. So we're afraid to get up high. Some people have that problem from the time they're little, but it's not common with younger people as it is sometimes with older people. The almond tree blossoms. What's that all about? Well, blossoms on an almond tree are white. If you still got your hair, your hair typically gets gray. And it turns white really fast, I might add, as you move forward. The grasshopper drags itself along. Really, what this is saying is the grasshopper, the language of the Old Testament actually says, the grasshopper becomes a burden to itself. And our bodies become a burden to us sometimes. And they really slow us down more than one way, physically, but also psychologically. They slow us down. And then it says, and desire falls. This has to do, more than likely, with sexual desire. It fails too, because man is going to his eternal home. Look, there's the hope, isn't it? We're going home someday. Jimmy Jean Peterson went home at the age of 97. Mrs. Prado went home. She was in her 90s. We who know Jesus, when we leave this life, we're going home. This is all preparatory to that. Let's read a little further. Verse 6. Before the silver cord is snapped, that would be your spinal cord probably. Or the golden bowl is broken, that's probably your skull, your cranium. Or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern. This probably would be your heart and or your circulatory system. And the dust returns to the earth as it was. And the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Now, I want you to keep your place there and turn to the book of 2 Corinthians just a moment. Jesus read this with you. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. How do we who are older, and sorry for you young folks, but take note, you're going to get there someday. But this is, how do we who are experiencing some of these changes in our bodies, how do we maintain hope? It's more than just developing a stiff upper lip. It's not about just not showing what we're feeling because we don't want people to think less of us. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with what God's doing in our lives. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Now, who is saying this? The Apostle Paul is saying this. Did Paul have reason from time to time to lose heart? He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. He was at sea overnight. He was in danger from robbers. Danger from his own countrymen. He runs this long list of things that endangered him. And then he said, on top of everything else, I have the concern of all the churches which the Lord has enabled me to plant. He was just under a weight, but he did not lose heart. There's enough heartache in this room to fill up the Colosseum in El Paso. You have heartache, but don't let it get you down because of whose you are and of who you are. Look at what he goes on to say. Though the outer self, that's what the ESV says, it's really man. The outer man is wasting away. We've already talked about that. Our inner man is being renewed day by day. Herein is the key. What is key to our not being crushed by the devolution of our bodies. What is to be the way we do that? It's by having daily renewal. How are we renewed daily? We come to the Lord every day. Not ritualistically. We come relationally. So we can open the Word of God and ask the Spirit of God to teach us. So that we can indeed remember the Lord and act decisively on His part when He gives us something to do, which He will do every day. Because He will, if nothing else, give you names of people who enter your mind for whom He wants you to pray 
There's nothing quite like intercessory prayer. We're more like Jesus, I would suggest, when we're praying for others than any other time. Because the Bible says Jesus Christ now lives to make intercession. He prays constantly, day and night. And we should reflect His nature in that. Verse 17 says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Let me just stop there in 2 Corinthians. Those two words, light and momentary, related to affliction, they don't seem to be part of my experience at times. Sometimes the affliction is heavy. More often than not, it's just heavy. And it doesn't seem momentary. It seems like in some cases it's never going to end. So how does this compute? How do we understand this? I've puzzled over this. A lot. I prayed about it. Lord, show me how is it light and momentary. I believe it is because you say it, but I don't know it in my own experience. And then yesterday, I was with a brother, and we were talking about the Word of God. We spent an hour and a half together from 10 to 10 to 11.30. And after it was over, we, we were looking at this passage of Scripture, actually. And it was the last passage we looked at. And as I got up to leave his office, it dawned on me. We had had a light and momentary experience together. It seemed like it had been about 15 minutes. When we looked at our clocks, it had been an hour and a half. Have you ever been in a relationship like that, in a moment like that? Where you're in the Word of God, you're fellowshipping with a person of like mind, and it's like it was gone. You know what happens? I'm sure of it. That when we're having that kind of conversation around the person of Jesus Christ who is eternal life, when we're doing that, we have the abundant life. And what that means is that eternity breaks into history. And eternity is timeless. It's light. That lightens our burden. And that would suggest to you and me, we need to be in relationship with people that we can have that kind of fellowship with, not just every once in a while. We need to make it a part of our lives. If you want to get out from under the burden, get with some brother or sister in Christ and share your life with him or her. Don't think about what you're going to get from it. You be the one who is acting decisively on the part of God because he said, encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that your heart may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's what we're to do. And there are many other expressions of this, by the way. Light and momentary. You want to get out from under that load? Walk with the Lord. Remember the Lord. Fear the Lord. This is where Solomon ends up here. After he spent 11 chapters singing the blues, he gets to the 12th chapter. And at the end, in verse 13 and 14, the two last verses, he says, the end of the matter All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep His commandments. This is the summation of a life that counts. This is what God wants for you. Fearing God, Psalm 112 Many of you were not here when that was read. Let me just give you verse 1 and read it. Psalm 112, read it. This is what it says. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord. It's blessed to know the Lord and to fear God. If you haven't entered into that kind of relationship, quit cheating yourself and more importantly, quit cheating God and other people. It says, how blessed is the man who fears God. And this is the explanation of what a God-fearing man or woman does. And greatly delights in the commandments of God. Does your life resemble that? Do you greatly delight in keeping the commandments of God? You are a person, if you do, you are a person who is greatly blessed. Read about what is yours. Claim it. Because that's who you are.
in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I want to say a couple of things and I'll be done. If you fear God, if you continue to fear God, or you start fearing God, it's amazing. You won't fear anything or anyone else if you fear God. But if you don't fear God, even if you have some sort of commitment to Christ, you're going to be afraid of everything. COVID-19, the stock market crashing, all those kind of things. You're going to be afraid of them. I'm not saying those aren't serious matters. But when you know the Lord, you're not defined by externals. You're defined by the presence of the Lord in your life. And He gives you courage. Not to live cavalierly, not to live tempting fate or tempting anything, but just follow the Lord. And you will be helped mightily by God. A statement made by Corey Ten Boom, not a trained theologian, but trained in the school of Christ, in the school of suffering in a prison camp during World War II. She said this, The measure of a person is not the duration of that person's life, but the donation of that person's life. Give your life away to the Lord first and then to other people as you serve the Lord. Let Him have control. Have a purpose that is out of this world. Has nothing to do with worldly things. Has everything to do with the Lord. In Ecclesiastes 2, I probably already said this, but I'm going to say it again. It's worth remembering and applies at this point regarding a purpose and the outcome of fulfilling that purpose God has. Remember the three things that we saw earlier? Wisdom, thank you. Someone was listening carefully. Knowledge and joy. Praise the Lord. That's what God wants for us. And then have a focus. You will, if you fear the Lord, that's other-centered and not self-centered. Let's pray. Father, help me to fear you. Thank you for calling us who know you out of darkness into your marvelous light to be your voices in the world, to be an example of what it means to be really human because we become more like Jesus who is the prototypical human being, the only one who has throughout his life been totally human. Thank you, Lord. Restore to us the joy of our salvation as we fear you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.